I just want to jump in here with a quick note about some changes that are happening. This podcast is now going ad-supported. What that means is I will be releasing select episodes from the hundreds of episodes I have archived now on Patreon and releasing them here. A lot of these were recorded a couple of years ago during 2020 especially. However, I have gone through them and deemed that the parenting information was still really relevant. So just be aware that some of these releases may be out of order chronologically. Also, if you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, you can still join Patreon. I'll still be releasing podcasts there with a few bonuses. One is that it will be ad-free. One will be that you get the podcast slightly earlier than everybody else. And I'll also be doing a bonus episode every month with a Q&A that's patron-specific. So if that's something you'd like to do, you can join for a dollar a month, and we'll see you there. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm Jamie Glowacki, and you are listening to Oh Crap, I Love My Toddler, But Holy Fuck. This is a podcast for conscious parents who drop the F-bomb a lot. Hello, hello. So by the time you listen to this, I will have announced that I am back from my vacation. (laughs) But this is my first podcast recording since being back from vacation. Pascal and I did not go into the wilderness. He sprained an ankle making the trip. It was going to be a very hardcore trip. So we had to cancel the wilderness, which was disappointing but necessary. But I did have an amazing, mostly unplugged vacation, and that I highly recommend. So I got to read a lot while I was on my vacation, and that was heavenly. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about two books that I read. And one is Hunt, Gather, Parent. And I cannot recommend this book enough. Hunt, Gather, Parent by Michaeline Duclef. And it is an amazing book. I generally don't love parenting books. When I was asked to write a parenting book for Simon & Schuster, I was like, okay. I generally think it's just really hard. I think broad strokes is like crazy, right? And I know both my books, I feel like, are just sort of living documents and shouldn't be published and written in stone because we learn, things change, new science comes out. You know, we're all just really experimenting with emotions and brains. <laughs> and so, you know, when I see a woman who's pregnant and they ask me for advice, I'm like, just stop reading. Stop reading now. Just focus on you, your feelings, like get ready for this child, parent the child in front of you. And I think we get really lost in information right now. But this would be a number one parenting book. Largely, I agree with it. <laughs> so that's one thing. So many great, like every single page is solid gold. And it's a PhD. Megaline is a PhD and she was a, a NPR reporter. And she went to three other cultures, Mayan, the Inuit, and I haven't gotten to the, the third culture yet, but she how they parent and how they parent differently. And so these are like cultures that are kind of wild in some respect, but they're not like bush people. They're not having to catch the food every day. It's not that sort of existence. You know, they have smartphones and they have amenities. And so, you know, when you read a book about, well, this is how they parent in this tribe in Africa. And it's like, yeah, well, they don't have electricity. It's a little bit different. You know, it's not one of those. The beauty of it is she has a daughter who's three or she did at the time of the writing, and her daughter went with her. And she really got to see she felt ostracized at first because her daughter was so Western in her behavior. She was 
cranky and threw tantrums and whined. And Michaeline didn't really know how to handle her. She was very wild, probably what we would categorize as like spirited. Very much like it sounds like the kids that I see on a regular basis, and I'm sure that you guys are dealing with on a regular basis. I'm going to do something with this book. Maybe it's a book club or something where we can go chapter by chapter, but I am going to be highlighting some things because I think it is so important. And the number one thing, the theme throughout the book that is so humongous that I just have to break down with you guys is the idea that In these cultures, the number one rule of parenting is the parents themselves stay calm. They never raise their voices. If they do, they are mocked by other people that they're being childish. So to be dysregulated as an adult with a child is considered extremely immature in these cultures. And they expect children to misbehave. So when the children misbehave, largely they ignore it. They have very subtle, interesting ways of shaping behavior, but largely they expect the child to misbehave. And there was this very telling part of the book where this woman is trying to interview another woman from the Mayan culture. And her daughter is like pokey and grabbing the microphone and just kind of being a pill. And the interviewer, Michaeline, gets pretty irritated with her daughter. And the woman she's interviewing says, you know, why are you angry? She doesn't know. Like, right. Like a three-year-old doesn't understand that this is an interview for NPR. She doesn't understand the gravity of it, right? What's the mic? This is fun. So I just thought, yes, this is happening so much in my work where honestly, I work with so many families that largely my work is No, 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 that's normal. And I think this has gotten so exacerbated because during lockdown, during the pandemic, we really lost our village. We lost any semblance of a village and we lost the perception, right? So it's real easy when you're doing things with other parents and, you know, doing things in groups and everybody's out at the playground, everybody's going to preschool, whatever the thing may be. We get to see our kid in relation to other kids. And of course, there's always a wide variance, but I have been shocked in the last year of the things that parents are expecting from little kids, from toddlers, from two, from three-year-olds. You know, even when the pandemic started, people were contacting me. They, you have to give me eight hours worth of activities for my two-year-old to play independently so I can be on a Zoom. And I found myself saying more that first year of the pandemic, like, Guys, there's nothing, there's nothing I could give you that would keep a two-year-old playing independently by themselves. And then what happened, I think, is as we came out of the pandemic, the expectation shifted. And I'm just finding that people are expecting so much of these little guys who are just trying to figure it all out. Yes, they have crazy behavior. And yes, some of the behavior that I work with is definitely, you know, quote unquote, out of control. But the premise, I just love the premise of like expecting kids to be super well-behaved all the time is the wrong expectation. And to me, that's so, I don't know, it unlocks something in my brain. It unlocks something in my heart where I was like, right, why are we expecting perfection from these kids? You know, oh crap, I have a toddler. I constantly say they're so new and they don't have, we completely overestimate their emotional intelligence. That's our job. We're shaping that with them, right? But we expect them to have this baseline emotional intelligence that they just don't have yet. One of the concepts that I particularly wanted to talk about because it was so funny, I had just finished this chapter 
And a friend had called me to just, you know, we call each other and tell like mom wins. So we're like, I just have to share this win because it was so great. And I just thought it was so great because I had just read the chapter about this very thing. So the chapter is that when kids are acting up, when they're acting, you know, not necessarily melting down, not necessarily like bringing down the house, but they're just niggly, you know, the minute they wake up, it's like, oh boy, it's going to be a pokey kind of day. So this is from Hunt Gather Parent. Those kids are unemployed. Our children want to be part of our family. They want to be part of our lives so desperately that they will act a fool if they're not. And they're unemployed and they want to have purpose. So this is the basis of like the Montessori. This is sort of actually like tying up several things I've been talking about for the last couple of months in a nice box with a nice bow, right? Children want to move with purpose and they want to be part. And so that is doing tasks, doing chores, doing things that are meaningful. Yes, if your child has a play kitchen and you have the Melissa and Doug set with the apples that Velcro together and the knife that the child can cut the apple, what are you doing? Your child should be in the kitchen cutting the apple. That's one of those areas where the stuff is relegating this activity to a child activity when it really could be easily recreated in real life. Be the activity, employ the child, give the child work. It's widely recognized that when kids need an outlet, hard work, have them lift something heavy, have them carry logs with a friend, have them carry a bucket across the yard, whatever you can manage in whatever your situation is, because that heavy work does something. We know that. I know this as an adult. If I'm upset, I go deadlift and I deadlift heavy, <laughs> right? Because that exertion feels good. It doesn't titrate the anger, but you know, it, it helps express it, but it also feels so purposeful. It just feels like I did something. Yeah. And we get to breathe heavy and we get to expel. And so I love that idea of thinking like, wow, this kid is unemployed, but it also goes to this thing that we've been talking about, which is the activities. If we keep regaling children to children activities, we are teaching the lesson that that's what they should do in life. You know, a few podcast episodes ago, I brought that up about activities and parents feeling strung out about activities and wanting their kids to be in activities. And there's a pull to go in the other direction, which is if your child is helping in real life, and it doesn't always have to just be household chores. It can be other things. It can be bringing your child with you to the mechanic. Um, This book even suggests if you can, as much as possible, bring your child to work, allow them to see what is part of the day for you. Because more and more and more, what we're doing is we're relegating kids to these kids' activities, but then that's where that entitlement comes from. Why should I help you if you've never trained me to help you? So the idea that at some magical age, your kid's going to turn six or seven and be like, oh, mom, I'll make my bed. I'll do my laundry. I'll help you with the dishes. If we haven't trained them from the beginning to be helpful, to take part in the family, to have these tasks, to be a valuable member of the family, then they're not going to go in that direction. It just like, for me, it rammed home so many things I've been thinking about recently, which is why do we do that? Why do we allow kids to watch a program while we're cleaning? I'm not asking why that's rhetorical. I know why, because it's easier. It's so much easier, but then we find ourselves stressed out, right? The kids aren't helping. We're not teaching them how to help, but more importantly, we start getting resentful because we're doing what we're training them to do is sit down and watch YouTube kids while we do the work that's going to build resentment. 
But then it was so funny. So my friend called me and she was like, oh my God, I just want to tell you, you know, we had this great day. And she said, I was just so proud of myself. She has um, two kids who are nine, I think, and nine and like 11. And they were going on a, like a kayaking trip. And she was feeling the stress of like getting everything together herself. And she was like, I can't do this. These are the chores that need to be done. And you guys have to help. And what was interesting is she didn't delegate the specific chores. She said, you know, lunches need to be made. The dog needs to be fed and walked and taken care of. And the bag needs to be packed or something like that. So her nine-year-old boy chimed up and said, I'm doing lunches. And she was like really wary because he had woken up on the wrong side of the bed. It was one of those days that she was like, shit, are we even going to get out of the house? Because, you know, he's kind of entering this moody phase. And she was like, I don't don't know. I don't know. And she said on a typical day, this is the kind of day that she would leave him alone, right? Because she could tell it was going to be rough. Anything she asked was going to be met with resistance. And so she would be like, why don't you just watch television, read a book, do something, just get out of my way, right? And instead he chimed up and said, I want to do the lunches. And she said, Jamie, you can't even believe it. Not only did he take orders, he labeled everything clearly. He packed the best lunches. Like he stayed crazy busy making the lunches and he was so proud of himself. And she was like, I couldn't believe it. He needed more work, not less. And I was like, oh my God, I just finished this chapter in this book that I'm reading, Hunt, Gather, Parrot. They said, and yes, kids need to be employed. They need work. They need purposeful work that contributes to the family. And so it's just this amazing real life example that just popped up. It struck a chord with me too, because I have had those days with Pascal where it seems leave well enough alone. Like I can tell, and I want to grant kids, you know, we all wake up in shitty moods sometimes, you know? So I've always been like, hey man, just hands off, leave him alone. Or maybe that's a yes day, which I still firmly believe in. But I also thought, well, shit, yeah, we got to add in more work. We have to add in value because who doesn't love to be valued, right? And even as moms, as dads, like when do we get resentment? When does the most resentment build up? When we're undervalued, right? So it blew my mind. I'd love for you guys to all like run out and buy the book so we could talk about it. (laughs) I'm going to definitely start something formal because there are some aspects. One of the things that these cultures all do without fail is when a child is really throwing it down, they ignore, they really ignore. And it's very similar, I think, to, you know, my go to the room strategy. And if you are new to the podcast and you haven't heard that, that's in one of the earlier episodes, let me know and I'll link that to you. I know sometimes it can be hard to find on Patreon, but you know, my go to the room strategy is never meant to be a punishment. It's to get the child out of the mix. And this book clearly states in many, many, many places that these other cultures view words as stimulating. So when your kid's starting to fall out, melt down, bring down the house, we try to fix it and we use words. And so that's where I have been in real life situations with families where maybe the parents are trying to cook dinner and they can't just ignore the child or the child's starting to escalate and they can't at that moment. So it's time to like separate the child, not in an abandoning kind of way, but in a way to just let the child start to self-regulate. And when the child gets zero feedback for the tantrum, for the meltdown, zero feedback. Like they ignore, like look over the child's head. So they're like, the child doesn't exist. The child quickly deescalates because there's no stimulation there. There's no pull to keep resisting whatever it is to have that tension. One of the things that happens though, and we've gone through this before, but I can't ram this point home enough. 
you cannot co-regulate if you are dysregulated. And so that's what I find completely in my work. And parents may know they're dysregulated and they may try to take some space. They may try to go to the bathroom and the child attacks them or comes at them. I'm seeing a lot, like I, I get very disheartened on social media because fucking reels, like there's something you have to do. It's how you get in the algorithm. It sucks because you take somebody like me, or I see plenty of psychologists or therapists, and we have to like create fucking entertaining content that's under a minute. And it's always, then you have to waste time in the comments because you have one minute to put this content in and people misunderstand it. And they're like, yeah, but, and you like, it's such a waste of time. I'm so angry at that. Like, I'm so angry. It has to be a thing because some of these concepts are huge and they can't be boiled down. And I think that's what happens is I see this again and again and again. Of course, I follow a lot of parenting people. I follow a lot of like therapists and whatnot. And they're like, you know, well, you just have to take a deep breath and tell your child that you'll be back in a minute. But the families I work with, the kid comes at them like a cat jumping out of a tree, right? So, and this is where like, I would love to talk to like more parenting coaches and be like, does that work? Because with do I just get the clients who like everybody's off the wall? <laughs> which is fine. I've always said I'm the safety net for the gentle parenting people, right? That's where I developed the go-to-your-room strategy because I was like, man, we just need to separate, right? Because the parents dysregulated. So anyway, I just thought that this book, the whole premise is that the parent is regulated. And so that is where I want to come in with another book that I just loved. Because if you are yelling, losing your shit, responding in anger, you're dysregulated, yes, but more importantly, you are teaching your child that we respond in anger, right? And so if you want your child to be calm, I can't find the page right now, but the elder of one of these villages was like, if you're angry at your child and you want them to be calm, why would you get angry? Like, why would you display anger? You need to display calm. You know, it's that concept of lend them your calm, not your chaos, right? And so we go back to do your work, do your work, do your work. And more and more and more parents keep coming to me and they're like, I can't have loud noise. Loud noise triggers me and makes me very upset. I need these children to be quiet. There's something about noise, auditory stuff. I get a lot of people who are triggered. You know, maybe they grew up in an abusive household, lots of yelling. Their parents were yellers. They get very triggered. Guys, that's not your kid's problem. That's your problem. That's a you problem. You can't make your little kids be quiet because you get triggered. You need to not get triggered. And that's where you have to work on your stuff. And, you know, there's traditional therapy. There's EMDR that's very effective. There's amazing research coming out with psychedelic use. There's so many ways to hit trauma that doesn't just have to be talk therapy. In fact, more and more I'm thinking talk therapy is almost like the longest, most painful way. (laughs) There's so many ways that you can zap trauma out of your system, but you have to attend to it. Over and over and over again, we're in this, like, there's just no distress tolerance. Parents are getting triggered. Parents are letting their three-year-old's emotions lead the house. They're getting, like, crazy and wringing their hands and crying. And I'm like, you're the grown-up. You can't be in distress because your child's in distress. Like, you got to be calm. So I was reading this other book. It's called Radical Confidence, and it's by Lisa Bilyeu. And she's her hot ticket. I follow her on social media, and she is the co-founder of Quest Nutrition. So I don't know if you know the Quest bars. They're like a high-protein, considered low-carb. I I don't really think they are, but (laughs) they have a like a low-carb 
what do you want to call it? Company. So they do chips and pizzas and the protein bars and cookies and things like that. So she's the co-founder and she has a, she has a funny story. And so her book is called Radical Confidence. And it's probably one of the best self-help books I've ever read. It's really practical advice on sort of getting more confident and being more of a badass, even just to yourself, you know? And she's got a very interesting story. But one of her themes of just her is she comes from a Greek family, like born in in Greece. And she was the only daughter and she was more than expected to have many, many children. And as Quest took off, she and her husband really looked at their lives and decided that maybe children really wasn't in the cards. Like you can want children. But when she looked at her day to day, she was like, no, I can't give up any of this. And so she had to make the really hard decision that they probably wouldn't have children. And she had a whole couple of pages on the idea of how sad she was and that you get to be sad, but you can make a different choice. You guys know me well enough. Like that holding of two thoughts is like, yes, I am going to be sad if I don't have a child and that's what's going to be the best for me. So I just, I thought that was really poignant. But her chapter nine towards the end of the book is gain emotional sobriety. And I was like, oh. I think I know what that is. So I just want to read you a couple of snippets. She gives at the beginning of the chapter, she gives these, like her definition of these words. So emotional sobriety, the ability to take a breather from an emotional high so that you can see what's really going on. Recognizing an emotional response to a particular situation is not the same as the practical needs that serve you in the situation. Number two, resisting the temptation to have one too many shots of anger, get drunk on your emotions and say something you might regret. Three, it's a term her husband coined. So emotions can be a freaking mind-altering substance, yeah? When you get carried away by your emotions, you're just as likely to do or say something you'll regret as you would be if you'd gotten a little too familiar with the waiter. Emotional sobriety is not about denying or repressing your emotions. It's about having them feeling them, but knowing when to put them aside. Yes. The more you start to pay attention, the more you know yourself, the more you can develop sort of an emotional breathalyzer that helps you identify the difference between feeling your emotions, which is healthy and being emotionally drunk. So the reason I love this concept is because of the things I just said. I am seeing parents emotionally drunk and it's almost like they're taking shots of their three-year-old's emotions. I love this line from her book. I know I'm emotionally drunk when I can feel a disconnect between how I'm acting and the person I want to be. Now, if that doesn't say it all, when you get angry and lose your shit on your kid, that is not who you want to be. I know that because I work with so many families who are like crying because this isn't the mom they wanted to be and they don't know how to stop it. So I love the idea of emotional sobriety. So it is, it's really learning to take that breath, the emotional breathalyzer. I like that, right? Feeling your trigger points, feeling when you start to lose your shit, is it helpful? Is it what's going to happen? Because in anger, we're almost always going to do that catastrophic thinking I talk about. We're always going to go to always, never, you do, you know, with your spouse, with your kids. The other thing is, I don't know how to describe this, and it's it's new. It's the last year with the families I work with, and it literally is 
the parents are catching the kids' emotions. Like the whole house is in a tizzy. And again, it's that like no tolerance, no distress tolerance. And the parents are like circling the drain while the kid is bringing down the house. We don't have that luxury as parents. So you have to do whatever it is you have to do. Now I've listed some forms of therapy, yes, but there is another thing that I think we all need to practice because my experience is the people who lose their shit the fastest, first of all, we've discussed this before, they don't titrate their anger, right? They don't titrate their expectations. So they wait till it overflows and then they lose their shit. So whether that's boundaries with friends, boundaries with in-laws, boundaries with your spouse, boundaries with your kids, the resentment will build. I also see it on a daily basis. I am very fortunate. Sometimes somebody will butt dial me on the walkie talkie app and I will be privy to what's happening in their house without them knowing. And it always works out. I mean, there's no judgment ever, but it's also interesting because I get to hear, like, I actually get to hear the voices and the kids. And in fact, in that other book, Hunt, Gather, Parent, that is one of the suggestions is actually put your voice recording on your phone and leave it on for like an hour and go about your business and then play it back and hear how you're interacting with your kid. And it will be unbelievable to you. You probably don't even realize what you're doing and all the things that are coming out of your mouth. I found this in my personal life and professional life is that the people who lose their shit don't know how to get angry. They don't know how to be angry and not lose their shit, you know, and oftentimes in parenting, again, this crosses into many, all relationships, but in parenting, this looks like, you know, could you pick up your shoes? Honey, I asked you to pick up your shoes. Hey, sweetie, the shoes. Yes, yes, yes. No, 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 Paw Patrol, until you pick up your shoes, okay? First of all, you are annoying. Second of all, you know, we know what's coming. Shoes aren't getting picked up till I asked you to put on your shoes. Nobody listens to me. You are always doing this. Right? That's when we start to lose our shit. So we don't know how to get appropriately angry. This happens in relationships. Very, very common. Intimate relationships. We just don't know how to be angry. You know, there's this thing where if you're in conflict, somehow that means you're not in love. Or if you're in conflict, it's trouble. And it's so funny because I have been accused of this when I, you know, dating or something. It's like, I like to process. I mean, I like to puree. I don't like to process. I like to grind that shit up. When there is conflict, I like to address it head on. And let's talk about this and just let's talk about it calmly. And very often the other person doesn't know how to deal with conflict. And conflict means something's wrong. Abandonment issues, you know, walls go up. The shit hits the fan emotionally because we weren't taught to be appropriately angry with love and still maintain that low level of anger that doesn't have to lose its shit. So that is something that I would say, you know, is a takeaway. I can't unpack all your trauma in one podcast, (laughs) but I can tell you that this is something you can practice, which is when you feel that anger, you know, work with your spouse and say, I don't want to yell anymore. I don't want to lose my shit. I don't want to be triggered every place I turn and I don't know how to get angry. I love you so much. Can we practice getting angry like with kindness, with love? And most people really do want to work on this. And the idea that even that we're all set, that we all are emotionally wise, we got our shit all done. It's crazy. Like we do have to practice these things as goofy as it sounds, but that's going to also help you repair any ruptures with your kid is, you know, you might yell and say, oh God, I am working on not yelling. I I was angry, but I don't have to yell to show my anger. You know, I'm going to practice better. You can do that and you can practice these things with your kids. 
one of the other really interesting things in that hunt gather parent is that is one of their tools in shaping behavior, which is actively when the child is calm, you never process. That's one of my rules that I love that this book sort of restates. It's like in the heat of the moment, it's not a learning. There's no lesson, right? And so we do that though. We do in the heat of the moment, we think we're going to teach. But later, way later, when the child is calm, when when you guys are having fun together and you say, hey, remember, remember earlier when we had that hard time? Let's practice. And you could do that with your child too and say, you know, hey, do you remember earlier when I yelled at you? I am so sorry about that, but I need to practice. Let's, hey, you make me angry. Do something to make me angry. And you play it out. And so your child actually gets to play it out. First of all, they get to correct their behavior, right? So if you're playing, you get to correct and say, oh, because your child's doing shitty things in the heat of the moment. They're in an altered space. They don't necessarily know all the ramifications, but when you play and you exaggerate it, you can have these things, but it can go both ways. It can go with you, the parent saying, I need to practice. Let's pretend you do something to make me angry. Oh, and then maybe let the child help you calm you down so that you both get these skills. These are practicable skills. We don't have to relegate to this, like, we should know better. I'm just going to apologize and move on. It takes practice to not lose your shit. Okay. And so now another thing that ties into all of this, I don't know if you guys know, I think, you know, I started Oh Crap Potty Training Podcast. So that's great because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I need to talk about, about potty training that I don't like to muck up with the parenting stuff. It's something I'm talking about over there and that is future tripping. And I I think I've mentioned it here a couple of times, but it does play into this emotional sobriety because it's like keeping ourselves in the future. Keep it. So it really shows up a lot for me in potty training because parents get like super strung out about like, oh, they have to start camp next week. They have to be fully potty trained to be in school. They have to, you know, all these things. So they will start and then they'll be like, you know, we have two weeks and they're like, for preschool, he needs to be sitting on the toilet wiping himself. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, he's so freaked out. He's not actually sitting on the toilet. So we're not going to force him to sit on the toilet and wipe himself. We have two weeks to work on this. But if you stay focused on that, we're missing what's happening in the moment, right? So it really shows up a lot. I can't force your kid to learn something faster, guys. I just can't. So future tripping is like super dumb, right? (laughs) But also it's where some of, and and again, I know I've given this example. I know I've talked about it here, but it's, it's worth repeating. With my own parenting, it's where I can go zero to 60 and lose my shit because I have just future tripped and I'm not actually in the moment. And so what happens is, you know, I, I always say this as an example, if Pascal like doesn't pick up his dirty clothes, I literally can go from zero to 60 to him I'm not kidding. I see the divorce proceedings with his wife who has had it with me because I never taught my son how to pick up his own clothes. And now he lives with the family and he's that guy who never picks up his clothes. That's what I do, right? Like we all go somewhere super fast. And so I respond in that moment. I respond in the panic of his divorce. He's 16. He's not even dating anybody. So that panic is wildly inappropriate (laughs) and sort of hilarious saying it out loud. But it happens all the time. It's happening in parenting. And again, it's part of this emotional sobriety. It's part of this like, stop clutching your pearls, you guys. Stop wringing your hands. Oh my God. Oh my God. I just, like he's hitting all the kids on the playground and he's going to be a serial killer. Oh my God. We don't have to go like that far. And the another part of future tripping is like, I think 
parents aren't understanding how long childhood is. So your three-year-old is nowhere near, their personality is blossoming and it's awesome. It's not going to be the same. Your child's going to grow and develop and go in so many different directions. The kid you have now is not going to be the same kid you have at 16. And maybe because my kid is older, I can see this so much clearer, but I have parents freaking out that like their four-year-old's behavior is what's going to be long-term. And it, you know, it could be, we want to fix issues for sure. Or the way their four-year-old is right now, you know, every freaking two, three, four-year-old is strong-willed. So everybody can stop telling me they have a strong-willed toddler. I was like, show me the unicorn kid who isn't strong-willed, right? But that's going to ease up. And so I feel like parents are really judging their three-year-old almost like it's a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old. It's like, you're, you're not even close. And not only that, but Pascal is 16. He's going to be so different when he's 20. When he's 22, who were you when you were 16? Who were you when you were 10? And look and see how different you are. So don't start projecting and future tripping and getting lost in what might happen. And that's big stuff, but it can also be like, I'll be working with a family and we'll be trying to make some changes. Yeah, but I no, because what if this happens? And what if that happens? I don't know. We got to try things. We don't want to stay the same, right? So we have to try things and we can't predict. And I think in an unsure world, everybody wants surety now and nothing's sure, right? So the idea of like, what happens when? But what happens when? What happens next year? I don't know. The biggest thing people are saying, you know, what happens with these kids who were, were raised in a pandemic? Damned if I know, I wasn't around in 1919 when that time it was over. (laughs) So just stay in the moment, stay present, get emotional sobriety, get a handle on your anger and practice, 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 practice having your emotions and not letting your emotions take you down because you may be modeling that for your child or you might be catching your child's emotions and just contributing to the chaos. Yeah. I mean, we just have to be these fortitudes of strength. And I use this example all the time with clients. I don't know if I've mentioned it here, but it's like, you're got to be a tetherball. You have to be, the pole is you. You're in the ground, you're in cement. And if you play tetherball, I don't know how they get those in. They might go to the core of the earth because I've never seen one knock over. And your child's the ball, round and round. They will wrap you up. They will unwind. They're scattered everywhere. But you are that pole you're not going to knock over. You're not going to sway. You're going to absorb the chaos and reflect your calm. So with that, I'm going to log off. As always, I appreciate you guys and rock on. Okay. Bye everyone. Just a reminder, if you need additional resources, I have Oh Crap Potty Training. I have Oh Crap, I Have a Toddler. Those books are available everywhere you want to find a book. (laughs) You can also go to my website, jamieglowacki.com, where you can book private sessions with me, buy any of my courses. Those are really geared towards potty training help. And also I'm on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook anymore and I'm not on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, jamie.glowacki, and I do a lot of lives and uh, usually posting a lot of good information. So those are extra resources for you. And as always, rock on. Have an awesome day.